Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Brian, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Dow 30,000. We're within shooting distance of that major marker, but Berkshire's Charlie Munger has a major warning for this market, and we'll tell you what that is. Plus, Tesla tapping the market. We'll tell you why shares are higher and continue to rise this afternoon. A news Tesha Tesla is going to be issuing more stock. And finally, dating drama for Facebook, Bloomberg's meme machine, and IPO woes. We'll have it all in rapid fire. But we do begin with the markets today, and Dom Chu has those numbers. We're actually near the session highs right now, Kelly. It was at one point in the day for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. A 205-point drop. That's where we were at the lows. At the highs, we were down just roughly about 24 points. As you can see here, closer towards that high end of the range so far today. We'll see if that momentum sticks. The S&P just about flat on the day, as is the case with the Nasdaq down about one-tenth of one percent. Now, if you take a look at one of the themes developing so far in 2020, it's about that tech race higher, right? The momentum is there growth, cyclicality. It's back again. And you, as you can see here, technology, the best performing sector in the S&P, up 11% so far year to date. But the second best performing sector, utilities, up 8%. So that's a barbell, right? Really conservative, you know, defensive on one end, cyclical and technology oriented on the other. We'll see if that trend again plays out as the year progresses. And then the stock of the day, or at least one of them, it's a downside move in Kraft Heinz, down about 7%. It's off its worst levels of the day. But remember, this is a company that came out with better than expected earnings, but sales came in shy of estimates, and they took another $666 million write-down on brands in their portfolio. Remember, Kelly, it was about a year ago when that stock dropped 27% in one day after they took a $15 billion Right down, Kraft Heinz, certainly a big stock to watch today. Back over to you. Down 40% in a year. It has been a tale of woe. Dom, thanks. We begin today with the latest in the coronavirus outbreak. The number of cases jumping dramatically to more than 60,000 worldwide now, including 15 here in the U.S. Now, this jump is being attributed to changes in how the Chinese determine who's infected. The number of deaths is now at more than 1,300. Meg Terrell joins me now, Meg, with more on what has changed and what we know. Yeah, the numbers that we saw out of Hubei province, which, of course, is the epicenter of the outbreak in China, were jarring last night. It looked like a 10 times increase in the number of confirmed cases. More than 14,000 cases, they said, had now been confirmed. To put that into context, we'd been seeing about 1,600 to 2,000 each day coming out of that region. So what we discovered is that um, China in that area is now defining cases by clinical diet diagnosis, as well as by confirming with test kits. And the clinical diagnosis is being done based on chest imaging. So patients who have severe pneumonia and other symptoms and history that would suggest they have the novel coronavirus are being considered clinically diagnosed cases. Are they being reclassified, in other words, or this is just a different way of of understanding when people show up that they're showing up with, with this? 
Well, the WHO said today it is possible that this characterization will capture people who don't actually have the novel coronavirus. They could have flu. They could have other things that are causing pneumonia. So that is something to keep in, in, in mind. Um, but what it reflects is that there's not enough testing capacity in China to be able to uh, tell with official tests of DNA uh, that people have this virus. And so they're trying to capture everybody that they can. And there was a backlog of folks waiting to be tested. And that explains that huge jump. Finally, what should we expect with the numbers tonight? A similar kind of jump or back to the more moderate um, gains, so to speak? I'm really looking forward to seeing those numbers so we can know if they have tested everybody in that backlog with the chest x-rays and sort of taken care of that backlog, or if there will be more of that. Another really important number to look at tonight is going to be the number of new confirmed deaths, because that number also rose last night, and we don't know if that's also because these folks who passed away are being characterized in this new way, too, or if that rose for another reason. Absolutely, especially with all the workers now starting to come back to work. Uh, big questions. Meg, thanks. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell, and we'll have more tonight in our coronavirus special. Uh, let's turn now to the market where Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chair Charlie Munger has issued a warning to investors at the Daily Journal's annual meeting. He urges them to prepare for tough times as, quote, excesses rise. Listen. I think this indexing thing is going to run and run and run. And I think that the there are wretched excesses in uh, a lot of the well-paid hedge fund and private equity businesses that will in due time result in a lot of troubles that give pain. For more on the markets now, I'm joined by Bill Smead. He's CEO of Smead Capital Management and Portfolio Manager of the Smead Value Fund. Our Dom Chu is here as well. And Bill, I wanted to begin, I know you watch uh, Berkshire and, and Munger and Buffett very closely. Uh, were you surprised about where he identified the excesses, in other words, in hedge funds and in private equity? Because I thought his comments might actually be, you know, sort of more broadly describing the indexing revolution or, you know, some other such phenomenon. Yeah. Charlie Munger, in my opinion, is the Solomon of, of our <laughs> lifetime. Yes. He, I, think, I think he might be the wisest man in America. And so what he, what he does for you is... You, you have to invert, right? He always says you always must invert and, and, and realize that, that this idea that there's some end game success story by pursuing a trend for far too long it, it is going to be a winning hand. And then later in the thing he talked about, he likes to be in situations where he has very little competition in areas that he has competency. So just think of the contrast. All these brilliant people with all this technology and all this money out there pursuing not enough attractive alternatives. You know, Bill, the other thing he said that I, I would like your point of view on is he said, and, and people always confuse what we mean by value. And Dom, you know this because they consider value to be a factor. It's not, he's saying it's not a factor. You can't just say something has a low PE that makes it a value stock. He says a value is anything that's a good buy. How would you mesh that? You know, you could have argued that Fang has been a value in some sense, at least if you go back, you know, many years now or look at the earnings power that even Buffett has said in Amazon's case has been underappreciated. So, you know, it's not like he's throwing all of the momentum stocks out of the market. How would you describe where you think the, the dangerous excesses are? No, I, I like the way he addressed both Tesla through Musk and the way he's addressed Amazon. So he, he calls Amazon an act of nature. Uh, what are the other acts of nature? Hurricanes, tornadoes, right. earthquakes. Now, what, what do they all have in common? Completely unpredictable. 
What did he say about Elon Musk when asked about BYD's drop in, in, in uh, selling, uh, you know, the batteries for, for the electric cars in China down 50 to 70 percent? Why is Musk having so much success while BD, BYD is not? His answer was uh, because Elon, Elon Musk is going to cure cancer. Now, if you invert that, you realize what he's saying is that you're talking about something that's unanalyzable. And by the way, as a value manager who's in a value depression right now, right. Uh, that's very comforting. It means I don't have to worry about trying to be smart about that. I got no chance to, to even worry about it. Right. He put in the too hard pile. Dom, interestingly enough, we also had T. Rowe Price changing some of the stock allocations in its retirement funds, too. Sure. For example, for younger investors, put them 98 percent in stocks. Um, for those who are post-retirement, 30% in stocks up from 20%. So does that headline, combined with what Munger is saying, mean we should be worried about these trends, or are they just an accurate, a more accurate reflection of today's reality? They're related, but not exactly the same thing. The, the reason why the T. Rowe Price move makes a little bit of sense before you say, oh, all they want to do is get more and more in the stocks, it's being actuarially and demographically driven. The reason why is because Americans, as a matter of fact, are living longer lives these days than they were 50 years ago. So if you look at the, the reasons why people want to be more in stocks, what they're trying to do is not outlive their money. And the only way that you can do that in a low-yield environment these kinds of days is to get a little bit more into stocks to get that capital appreciation. Now, if you're looking for one more case in point, there's a great story right up on on our personal finance website, cnbc.com, that talks about some of the proposed changes to required minimum distributions oh, that retirees take out. And a lot of the driving force behind that is because retirees are living longer. So if you can put off taking some of that money that you have to take out until a later date, you might have more of it Absolutely. as you get older out there. So all of these are demographic trends, not necessarily speaking to what perhaps Charlie Munger is saying about right. the overall indexing theme. But I guess the, to, to put a button on it, Bill, and I know often you, you know, you're picking specific stocks here, but what would your advice be to people when they're saying, look, I need to be in the stock market because I have a, a long time horizon, even if I'm nearing or, or in retirement, and yet we're talking about all these excesses. What is your advice to them? Well, uh, the toughest advice I can give everybody right now is, is that the S&P is tilted extremely heavily toward growth investments, while growth has been hard to co come by. And once again, the coronavirus has just been one more thing to cause growth be hard to come by. And the problem is uh, the, the fruit of that arena has been heavily picked over. And I would remind everybody that at the time 20 years ago when, when, when growth was the most popular, uh, people were starting Internet funds three months before uh, uh, the end of the line. And the damage to people can be severe. So back to Dom's point, one of the best things you can do to protect yourself in retirement or any, any other phase is make sure you're not getting caught in a euphoria episode. All right. Guys, thanks. We'll leave it there for now. Appreciate it today. Bill Smead and Dom Chu. We have a news alert in the bond market right now. Those 30-year notes up for auction making some headlines. Rick Santelli, what's going on? Big headline. Dutch auction yields 2.061 for 30-year bonds, $19 billion, the lowest Dutch auction yield ever. Now, it isn't the lowest yield ever. That's 195 from October of last year and also July of 2020. 
16, but nonetheless, it's huge. I gave the auction a B plus. We moved that paper well. All the metrics were above average, and it priced quite solid, actually right at the low end of the when-issued market. So $84 billion in supply moves out the door, and investors are happy. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick. So the debt he- headlines are up. The deficit headlines are everywhere. You know, and, and we've got the lowest auction uh, ever for 30-year paper. We'll just spend the rest of the show pondering that one. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Rick Santelli at the CME today. In fact, let's get to a major headline in the energy market now. Global oil demand is set to drop for the first time in a decade. For more, I'm joined by Brian Sullivan. Mr. Sullivan, uh, there's an effect here from coronavirus, isn't there? Oh, there absolutely is, Kelly. Thank you very much. First off, the IEA, International Energy Agency, coming out with sort of an update. They do these monthly numbers, but of course, coronavirus front and center. Now, I'm going to give you a headline that, of course, you already know. The IEA saying that global oil demand is hit hard. That's their world. Okay, what does hard mean? Subjective term. Well, keep this in mind. China, the world's second biggest oil importer. The IEA believes that China throughput, basically bringing it in, putting it into refineries so they can make it into gasoline, is down by 1.1 million barrels per day. We've seen higher estimates, by the way. And maybe 500,000 per day going forward for the first half of the year. So, of course, what does that mean for us here in the United States and all those beaten up producers? Well, the IA Kelly notes that lower prices are bad for U.S. oil companies. We've talked about this a lot. Yes, lower gas. You say, oh, it's great for the consumer, but it's not good for companies that need higher prices to pay their debts. Of course, we've said it. Oil is a four-letter word spelled D-E-B-T. I like this new setup. I know. Come on I'm down. I'm walking down. I feel like I'm on a game show. Uh, the price is right. I'll uh, take oil trivia for 600 Well, here's one for you, which I'm sure you saw yesterday. Whiting Petroleum down 20%. So yep. you said maybe, you know, that low oil price isn't as good for the economy as we think. I mean, this would be another example. Whiting is kind of concerned about its next steps. I mean, that's that's what investors are looking for is how can you show to us you're going to have the cash flow that we're looking for. You're going to have the earnings profile that is sufficient uh, to continue in this low. There was a debt wire headline on Whiting yesterday that moved the moved the stock down 22 percent late in the afternoon that it may be reviewing capital structure alternatives. What that means is when you've got a lot of debt and you've got companies, there's a lot of companies out there, Kelly, that have net debt to EBITDA. Okay, it sounds fancy of two and a half, three, three and a half, four times. Factor that into, say, a Microsoft, which is probably at 0.3, something like that. Four times as much debt as earnings, roughly. Think about that. And so if you're 50 bucks a barrel, pretty much you're just covering your operating costs and you're paying down your debt. And you just keep pumping more because you need to have that cash flow, but you're not really making any money at all. And of course, that just floods the market at 13 million barrels a day to the U.S. You know, and as demand goes down, and if people don't slow down, Kelly, you wonder prices keep going is down. Is it going the way of the nat gas market? I mean, that's got to be the panicky question on everyone's minds down Plus there. It's been so warm. Right. You don't need to heat your house. It's 51 degrees right. here yesterday. Right. I'm not complaining. By the way, there's about 22 nat gas big LNG projects on the books in the U.S. right now. One wonders what's going to happen to those at a buck eighty. Yeah, how can they make any money? They can't be financially viable. They can't. It's sort of a blessing and a curse. Brian, thanks so much. We sure thing. Brian Sullivan. Uh, let's talk a little Tesla, which is not unrelated to what we were just discussing. Uh, shares have now turned positive and are up more than 3%, up more than, uh, uh, yeah, about 3.5% after a 4% loss at the open. They're surprising the street by announcing a $2 billion stock offering. And that's a sharp reversal from a couple weeks ago when the CEO said they wouldn't be raising fresh capital. Mike Santoli joins me now. Mike, Brian was just talking about some of these energy companies where, there's a concern about how they're going to handle their debt load. A similar question has been raised for Tesla, and now here comes the stock offering. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly the right thing to do from a corporate finance perspective for uh, Tesla management and the board. Never mind the fact that, you know, Elon Musk said we don't see the need for it. Obviously, there's a need for it. The company continues to consume capital. It does have $13 billion in debt. In fact, I mean, I think a lot of people would have expected an offering to come and maybe $2 billion seems a little bit low in terms of what uh, this company could have raised at these levels or near these levels. I'll just point out that in the mania with the, the stock going up above 900 briefly, and even since then, it has routinely traded $40 billion worth of stock a day. Wow. So it's not as if $2 billion should necessarily be a particularly big bite. So why not offer more, Mike? I mean, Elon Musk, when asked about this a couple of weeks ago, said, you know, we're not going to just do this because everybody thinks, you know, we need to, like, we're, we're fine. We're not going to dilute unless we have to. Why the change of heart, do you think? And if they're going to do $2 billion, especially if the stock's now going to be up on it, why not do more? I think, first of all, the, the ultimate size of the offering could end up being somewhat bigger. This often happens when they go out and, and start to shop a deal. I don't think very much bigger, but it could end up being more than $2 billion. I do think there maybe is some sensitivity about the signaling effects from the company of issuing stock at these levels. I mean, if I look at the announcement and they talk about how uh, Musk as well as Larry Ellison are going to buy what I would characterize as token amounts of stock, given how much their value in Tesla has gone up in recent years, it suggests a, a sensitivity to what this means uh, for this perceived scarcity, the supply-demand picture that has sent the stock to such, uh, such heights right now. Right. So in other words, they're not, there's no real economic impact of them buying in. They're doing it more to make a point of, hey, we're in this with you. you it's know. a gesture, I yeah, think. As exactly. A, as yeah. a gesture and not uh, a minor one. Mike, thanks so much. Okay. Mike Santoli at the NYSE. And here's what else is still ahead today on The Exchange. Coming up, it's a different ballgame for the Democratic Party than it was just a few weeks ago with new frontrunners and a new wave of capital. We'll explore where the party goes next with Representative Maxine Waters. Plus, things are looking bleak for direct-to-consumer startups. We'll tell you why and who's having the most trouble. And Facebook hits a major roadblock in Europe. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Starting on July 1st, in the U.S. and Europe, we're not going to take a company public unless there's at least one diverse board candidate with a really? focus on women. And we're going to move toward 2021 requesting two. And we realize that this is a small step, but it's a step in a direction of saying, you know what, we think this is right. We think it's the right advice. That was Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon on the bank's plans to encourage diversity in corporate governance. The move could signal that the banking industry is ready to take greater steps to improve diversity within its ranks. And joining me now with new data from the country's largest banking institutions is Representative Maxine Waters, chairwoman of the House Committee on Financial Services. It's great to see you. Welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here with you. Do you think that the banks are actually doing a pretty good job in this regard? I mean, that, that's a big announcement from Goldman Sachs. Well, uh, 
you know, the banks and other companies have gotten started. Finally, this discussion about diversity and inclusion has evolved to the point where most corporations now believe it is in the best interest to have the talent uh, that they may have missed because they did not have outreach programs that would include minorities and women. And so we're seeing real efforts now uh, to realize that it's good for the bottom line uh, to have a diverse workplace. And so we sent out, as you know, these questionnaires uh, to the banks, and they returned them, and we learned an awful lot. And I think they were pretty honest about what was going on. And um, yeah. we're working with them, and some are developing their own personnel, their departments, uh, to get into the business of real diversity and inclusions. Others are asking for help. And so I'm very pleased uh, where this discussion has gone. I'm so pleased that we were able to create a new subcommittee on diversity and inclusion. And I am very optimistic that we're going to have success with this. Are quotas coming, mandated uh, quotas for these kinds of institutions? And Congresswoman, do you think that's a good idea? You know, we see a lot of this in different states and we see different shareholders pushing for moves to say X percent or X number of people have to be female or black or, you know, you name it in a lot of these situations. Is that the right way uh, ultimately to go about this issue? Well, I haven't seen that because nobody is going back to the old affirmative action uh, that caused so much distress in this country. Uh, that issue has been litigated. It's still litigated. I don't hear anybody anybody saying you've got to have X number of blacks. You've got to have X number of women, X number of men, X number of LGBTQ. I don't it, hear yeah. any of that at all. What I hear people saying is... We want to do what is necessary to make opportunities available. Many of them are recognizing that they have not done outreach. They have not gone to minority colleges and universities. They have not had an open door for people to even apply. And so I think that most operations, most corporations that are getting on board uh, with increasing uh, diversity and being more inclusive are trying to do it in ways that they can acquire talent wherever it comes from. And so nobody's talking about three here, four there, five here. I don't okay. hear that kind of conversation. Okay, let, let me ask you, since it's uh, such a unique opportunity to have you today, uh, with so much going on in the national news with your party, Congresswoman, what are your thoughts about Bloomberg's candidacy? This is so unique to have somebody who, with so much money, able to run, you know, we love it in the TV business. He's spending a ton of money on, on all these political ads. Um, but Bernie Sanders says he's, he's trying to buy the election. I mean, how do you feel about him entering the race and building up quite a support uh, level at this point by paying all this money to do so? Well, let me just say this. We live in a democracy unless it's undermined by this president who doesn't know what he's doing. And the democracy and the way it gives everybody an opportunity uh, is what we basically believe in. Now, I do think that processes are distorted uh, when people have extraordinary amounts of money and it does give them an advantage and it causes us some concern. But they haven't uh, violated any laws, any rules, uh, and whether you have your own money or whether you are collecting it from thousands or millions of people in small amounts, that's the way the democracy works. By raising sort of that support either way. All right, so you're not necessarily uh, casting any aspersions on, on how he's going about this. And then one final thing, and it, it's just about the fiasco that Iowa 
has been the last couple of weeks and the primary process uh, from here on out. California has moved up uh, its primary. It's going to assert more weight uh, going forward. Iowa obviously will assert less. So how do you think that's going to affect who becomes the nominee in your party this time around and in the future? Well, I think my state is extremely important, and that is why we moved up our primary. As you know, we have candidates who fly out to Los Angeles from everywhere to raise money. As a matter of fact, it had gotten so that you would have two, three, four at a time in Beverly Hills having dinners. Uh, and some of our contributors who are very rich were holding, you know, fancy parties, uh, trying to accommodate the requests for donations and contributions. And so, you know, the conclusion, the thinking is that if we are supplying tremendous dollars to candidates, we ought to have more say. And of course, beyond that, a lot of people have come to the conclusion that it should not simply be Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, that certainly they are not reflective of the makeup of this country. And so California has a role to play. We're going to play it. March 3rd is going to be very significant for us. And I think we're going to have great influence right. on I will who becomes the nominee. You know, there are some other states who think California already has too much influence, though, Congresswoman. I beg your pardon? So people think California already has too much influence. Oh, we don't think so. We think that we put a lot into the economy. We pay a lot of taxes. And um, we want to make sure uh, that we have a significant role. And we're happy if we're, be a we're able to influence. All right. Congressman Maxine Waters, great to see you today. Thank you for your time. We appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Coming up on The Exchange, if you want to know how the coronavirus spread, there's a company that will help you get those answers. The CEO joins us with how they're doing it and who's using it. And the list of names is long. Plus, Mike Bloomberg is turning now to Internet meme makers to promote his campaign. Is this a brilliant strategy or is this money misdirected? We'll debate that in rapid fire. A reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Rider's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here are some of the movers this hour. Shares of Wayfair are down more than 10%, just about 10% today. On news, it's cutting about 3% of its workforce. That includes 350 people at its Boston headquarters. Uh, 
Those kind of expense measures can often boost a stock. Not the case with W today. Shares of real estate firm Redfin are soaring on earnings. Analysts pointing to higher listing fees, increased agent efficiency, and strong housing market tailwinds for 2020. That's a 15% jump. And shares of Equifax are up more than 5% after earnings. They beat on the top and bottom line. Strong mortgage activity. There's the theme. With better verification methods, a bright spot for this company. Shares are up more than 5% this afternoon. Now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Sue? Thanks very much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi held her weekly news briefing today and accused President Trump of an abuse of power, her words, for intervening in the sentencing of his longtime associate Roger Stone. However, the speaker declined to commit to a congressional investigation of that matter. As Kelly just mentioned, Wayfair is indeed cutting about 500 jobs or 3% of that company's workforce. The Internet home design retailer says the move is part of its restructuring. It's trying to reduce costs in its operations. A proposed mural of Greta Thunberg in downtown Bismarck, North Dakota, has been withdrawn. The artist, who had planned that seven-foot mural in honor of the activist, says the business slated to feature the image had received threats of boycotts and also vandalism. And the White House confirming President Trump will indeed attend the 62nd annual Daytona 500 on Sunday. The head of the Daytona International Speedway issued a statement saying he is honored. The president has chosen to experience the great American race. Mr. Trump will become the second sitting president to attend the Daytona 500. George W. Bush was at the event in 2004. All right. I made it through the news update, Kel, without sneezing. I'll send it back to you. Oh, feel better. I was going to say, I hope the president brings earplugs because those races. Yes, it's very, very, very loud. Are so loud. So thanks. We appreciate it. Got it. Uh, here's what else is ahead on the exchange. Ahead, a look at the technology that's helping the world map the coronavirus. Why one analyst thinks Caterpillar can rally 20%. Rent the runway tries to fix its logistics problems. Bloomberg's Meme Machine, and Direct-to-Consumer Woes. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines with me are Dominic Chu, Morgan Brennan, and Steve Kovac. First up, let's talk about this Caterpillar upgrade. It's Goldman One. Uh, they're slamming it, slapping it as a buy from neutral. And they're raising the price target on the stock to 168 from 156. That's a 20% upside from where shares are trading right now. Um, Goldman's saying inventory destocking and other favorable conditions, Morgan. But more interestingly, this is the stock that for years has been caught up with every time there was a bad headline on China trade or tariff news or the economy. Yep. Now here we are in the middle of coronavirus and they're getting this upgrade. Yeah, which I think is why it's surprising and it's certainly got some attention, the fact that Goldman would turn bullish on this name. First time, I think, for this analyst in six months. Attractive risk versus reward uh, is what was cited in this note. And basically, it's that it's an improving scenario uh, for inventories here. Basically, that maybe it can't get any worse. That's what I was going to say. In, in so analyst like speak, attractive risk reward is means the, the stock has gone down <laughs> so much exactly. that it's now a good buy. <laughs> But That's do they have a point, Dom? I mean, is, is there, so with so many of these names that are not MAGA right now, I'm talking about the trillion-dollar companies, yes. the things, if you will, is there a case to be made that they are 
kind of being unfairly sidelined. So here's the thing. If you believe that the overall market trend is to the upside still, what you're looking for perhaps as a trader or a long-term investor are some of the names that are blue-chip brand names that have not participated to the record run that we've seen. Caterpillar falls into that category. You could argue other blue-chip names on the industrial side as well. But it's not been just a tech story because the entire market, again, has moved towards those levels. But some names have been left behind. And for those names, Caterpillar could be one of those that says, hey, the catch-up trade is there and it could be 20% a year. Right. And that's why I think it'll be a good one to watch, Uh, you know, fundamentals notwithstanding. Uh, Let's talk some Facebook, which is getting stood up by the EU ahead of Valentine. Day. Uh, the social media platform was set to launch its dating service in Europe today, coincidentally, um, but the EU is forcing them to call it off because it failed to give regulators there enough advanced warning. Authorities are also saying Facebook didn't show it had performed a legally required assessment of privacy risks. Kovac, we go to you oh, on this, not because of your dating life yes. uh, or any questions. I'm married. About, okay, well, <laughs> that I hope we, there's not much to discuss. Um, but, you know, it, why do you, th- are they just trying to make life difficult for Facebook or are these real problems? No, absolutely not. I can't, in, in this scenario, I can't tell if Facebook is being irresponsible or incompetent because they should know that they have to disclose this stuff before they launch a new product or a service like this. And that's, that's why their offices got visited by this commission, because they said, you guys are launching this thing in a couple of days. We had no idea what you were doing with it. And especially with something like dating and when all that stuff and privacy gets right. mixed in, it, it, it adds an extra level to it. They're not u- new to the European Union, and, and everybody knows they're... They're being investigated for other stuff. Right. I mean, it's, it's, they know these rules. So I don't know what happened here, but it's either irresponsibility or just you think they'd, incompetence. You think, think they'd be hypersensitive. Exactly. Hypersensitive, given the yeah. regulatory scrutiny, enough so on this side of the Atlantic, more so on the other side of the Atlantic, that this might just seem like a plain old execution error on their part. The EU's been leading the charge on all of this. They know better. Yeah, and I I think it certainly seems like a gaffe. Don't forget, Mark Zuckerberg is actually headed to Europe this weekend for the Munich Security Conference, which he is uh, scheduled to participate in. There's also reports that he's going to be meeting with European officials. And then in the coming days, you have more data regulations set to be unveiled within the European Union, Hmm. too. So he is going on a tour in Europe to see something like this take place beforehand. Doesn't seem like good PR. At the the same time, I mean, as long as they get the thing up and running at some point, I'm sure they wanted it ahead of Valentine's Day, but that probably doesn't matter so much in the grand scheme of things as, as you know, getting it right with authorities. I would imagine. All right. Here's one, uh, an ironic one for everybody. After suffering its fair share of logistics nightmares, Rent the Runway is hiring a former Amazon executive to oversee its supply chain. This guy, Brian Donato, is joining clothing rental startup uh, as chief supply chain officer. And they're bringing two other Amazon veterans into the company. Is this what it's going to take to right the ship, Morgan, I wonder? Oh, I think that's the big question when everybody's, you know, watching. This is a company that has grown and grown very fast. You know, it, it launched its monthly subscription model, then it couldn't keep pace with that, stopped taking on new customers. Last fall actually had, had to start writing basically $200 checks to existing customers who weren't getting their inventory in time. So certainly this logistics situation seems to be a headache and one that hopefully people with some expertise can write the ship off. Yeah, I love it. It's like the least sexy part of any business, but especially yeah, when like I, I disagree with <laughs> you on that, having covered logistics for the last couple of years. So here's my thing. I, a lot of folks out will focus back. on this headline. Everyone thinks it's a rent-the-runway headline. Mm-hmm. For me, it's an Amazon headline. Oh, 100%. For me, it's about management. For me, this is about how back in the day, GE was all Six sigma out and everything. 
in this day and age, in this paradigm for business models and e-commerce, Amazon, Amazon is point. the new General Electric. And all of those executives that have supply chain or logistics experience for a massive e-commerce operation like Amazon are now the captains of industry for other companies to come and poach if they have any aspirations to scale their business Especially the size of Amazon. if they're, I hate to use the phrase, but direct to consumer. I mean, if right. the whole yep. idea now is that these companies need to get product in consumers' hands, not by, with the help of an Amazon, but bypassing them, that's a pretty tall order. Yeah, it's Amazon's superpower, right? This whole logistics thing. They just switched on the one-day delivery, which is incredible. Yes. I ordered hot sauce last night. It's coming today. <laughs> and when, when you have a problem like hot Rent the sauce. Runway, where it's you know, yeah. growing like crazy, like you just said, You've got to get this stuff out to people, and people are going to get angry if it, you don't. It is, you know, six months uh, after the fact. Is it too late? I mean, how, do you think they've lost uh, enough momentum here by not by having all of these problems, or can they, as long as they get this back up and going, are they going to be just fine? I think there's a market here, particularly among women. Uh, there's the debate is out there in terms of men wanting to uh, rent clothes, share clothes. I would love it. Um, but there does seem to be a market out there. I know quite a few women who participate in this or would like to even gr- more greatly participate. In, in our own way. office, by the way. Exactly. Oh, we have many customers in our own office. Not to mention, I don't know if you heard yeah. actually uh, Mishka interview on the network earlier this week where they said rent the runway for them is still a huge channel and growing. So I guess, you know, there's your data point. All right, let's talk memes. Democratic candidate Mike Bloomberg is taking a new approach in his ad blitz, and he's contracted some of the biggest meme accounts on the internet to post sponsored content like this. It's a meme within a meme from Tank Sinatra. Stay with me. In this Instagram post, it appears Bloomberg is direct messaging his take on a viral Bernie Sanders meme. The Bloomberg campaign is working with a company called Meme 2020. Tank Sinatra has 2.3 million followers on Instagram. For more, let's bring in CNBC.com advertising and marketing reporter Meg Graham. Hi. Meg, you've got the inside scoop. Welcome on uh, what Bloomberg's doing here. Does it, does it, everybody's talking about it. Is that buzz enough? Um, and is it worth the money? Do we know how much he spent on it? Not yet. I've, I've heard that for maybe one of these accounts, like a typical um, post on one of these Jerry Media accounts would probably run like 50000 to 100000 for a post and like an Instagram story. So times that by 20 and you're looking at, you know, whatever that, you know, do the math. Wow. Um, but, you know, we'll see. And he might be doing more of them, too. I think it's I mean, it's crazy because I mean, we gave President Trump so much credit for how savvy he was on one specific social media platform of choice. Right. Twitter. Also with Facebook and his presence there. But but the idea that now you are tapping two point three million follower accounts like in Tank Sinatra. By the the way, Grape Juice Boys, if you guys haven't checked out that one. (laughs) 2.7 2.7 million followers there, and the content is stuff that resonates with a certain very core group of people. We're not talking about the 50 to 70-year-olds. We are specifically yeah. talking about like 13 to like 25-year-olds. Right. So if you're looking for that electorate, that's the place you're going. So I'm not sure if this is going to play out, but it's certainly a very interesting tact that the Bloomberg and I just like I just love Bloomberg's digital operation. Why is he the only Democratic candidate doing this at this? And that's a key question when it's been so successful for President Trump and we have the Trump war room, the memes that the GOP. Why weren't anyone wasn't anyone else prepared? I don't know. It's a yeah. good question. Well, Mike Bloombito, though. Miguel Bloombito. Miguel Bloombito. No, it was funny when reports that they had approached That's right. that Twitter. Oh, I saw that. Well, it's interesting, I think, because, you know, this, I feel like this generation, it's like the first time it's so obvious that, like, they don't watch TV. They're not listening to radio. So I feel like this is maybe the first, you know, campaign, obviously, where they're going to be voting 
it's really smart because they're not using traditional media. They're in a different world. How, how do you think the campaign is measuring if this worked, quote unquote? Because the funny thing is, a lot of it so far has been by the traditional media covering what he's doing, but that doesn't seem to be the goal. The goal seems to be, are those you know, Gen Zers on Instagram uh, somehow going to walk away from this and think he's worth a vote? Well, I think this like, is just a total blitz. Like, I think the attention thing right now is probably the short-term goal. Probably later on, they might start to introduce some more specific policy measures. Maybe they're going to start doing some of that. But I think for now, like this attention is probably great for them. Yeah. By the way, just one point. He's tacking Michael Bloomberg, the Super Tuesday Blitz. Those are states with populations that are more geared towards this kind of advertising True. than, say, Iowa or New Hampshire right, or yeah, South Carolina. I, I, absolutely. You know, I, th- I think... To Steve's point, I'm surprised more people aren't doing this. And the only final thing I wonder is with all these highly followed Instagram accounts, if they start doing all the sponsored posts from can are they just going to alienate their followers? Well, I talked is going to be self-defeating. Right. Well, I talked to one who this is the first time and they run 12 of the accounts, this doing things company. They're on 12 of the accounts that ran these. So I kind of said, you know, you haven't done these before. Would you do it again? And they were say, they said, sure, we would do these again if the campaign is hitting the right tone. You yeah. know? And if so. they're paying up, I'm sure. And if they're paying enough, yes. <laughs> Let's not forget that part right exactly. Meg, thank you. And thank you, everybody, today. Meg Graham, Dom Chu, Morgan Brennan, and Steve Kovac. Coming up, mapping an outbreak. My next guest company provides the technology to do just that. She'll join us with a look at how it works for things like coronavirus and the agencies relying on it in this outbreak. And let's look at the S&P 500, which just now in trading hit an all-time high. It's reversed higher today. 33.82 is your level. We're back in two. Welcome back. This sudden spike in coronavirus cases in China highlights how difficult it is to track the magnitude of this outbreak. One company is helping solve that problem. Its mapping platform helps health officials track the coronavirus in real time. And it's already used by hundreds of companies around the world, including the CDC, the WHO and Johns Hopkins University. For more, let me bring in Dr. Esty Garrity. She's the chief medical officer for technology firm Esri. Uh, Welcome. It's great to have you, doctor. And uh, first of all, what is your map telling us right now about coronavirus? Um, very glad to be here. Thank you. Well, right now, I think the map is telling us um, what we've been hearing all along, that this is an epidemic mainly based in China and uh, that the number of cases continue to grow every day. We did see a big spike yesterday, and I think that's been well explained through the media, um, indicating that there are new methods of diagnosing cases. Um, But basically, we're seeing how this spreads, and we're doing it in near real time. Are you relying on authorities to report this information, or are you able to somehow crowdsource it? Uh, There's a little bit of both, but I would say mostly the information is coming from authorities. And that, to me, marks a major transition in this particular outbreak, that uh, we're seeing a lot more sharing of data and information so that everybody can be made aware. But how can you trust it, you know, in a way with something, I guess, because this one's centered in China. And, and as we understand, the, many doctors think the Chinese are doing everything they can, you know, to get the right information out there. But in the early stages of this, and the Chinese people themselves are a little more skeptical of how, whether they're getting the, the straight story. Is there any way for you to confirm or verify or use additional sources to, you know, kind of reinforce whether what they're telling you is, in fact, what's happening? Well, I think that um, a number of organizations are using multiple sources. Uh, We are not, uh, as a company, curating those sources ourselves, but we've been keeping eye on the data that comes from World Health Organization um, and their resources, which, of course, are authoritative and trustable, um, the sources coming from the Chinese government, as well as uh, Johns Hopkins has been monitoring social media. 
So I think together, you know, we always know that data can be flawed, but I think we're getting the best possible picture. Yeah, you, as I understand it, left your medical practice to join this company because you're yes. so excited about the technology. <laughs> what is it that you see uh, as potential in either uh, being used in coronavirus or in future outbreaks? Honestly, I think that this technology can be transformational. Like you mentioned, I did uh, leave medical practice so that I could work here full time and promote the value of a geographic perspective. I think that geography has been a part of our data um, for decades or longer, but we haven't been using it to the extent possible. And we can make smarter, better decisions when we do. So I'm very excited about all of the potential of geographic perspective. You have a lot of corporate cl- uh, customers, including John Deere, FedEx, uh, you know, Fruit of the Loom. What are they <laughs> doing with this mapping data, this geographic information that they didn't previously have? Sure. I think a lot of businesses are using it differently. Some use it for site selection for their retail locations. Others use it for market analysis to reach the different uh, market segments that are appropriate to their business. And others use it for different kinds of surveillance, like we're seeing here, disease surveillance and other kinds of uh, healthcare analytics. Sure. And I, I imagine to figure out what, maybe which stores to close or whether to move supply chain, that sort of thing. Exactly. Dr. Garrity, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank we you. appreciate it. Dr. Esty Garrity of Esri. And for more on the coronavirus, do tune in to CNBC's special report. Outbreak coronavirus will be live tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern with the very latest data. Coming up, Casper's lackluster IPO, SoftBank's brand list going under, a deal blocked by the FTC for Harry's. Things are looking pretty bleak for direct-to-consumer startups lately. We'll look at why and who stands to lose. Plus, some good news for savers. The exchange will have that when we come back in soon. Welcome back to The Exchange. Some good news from Fidelity. They're saying that a record number of IRA and 401k accounts have balances of a million dollars or more in terms of the ones they manage. The average 401k balance rose to a record of $112,300. That's a 7% increase from the previous quarter. And it isn't just because of record market moves. Employees are also saving more. They say a third of plan participants increased the amount they were saving by an average of 3%. So there's your feel-good news for the day. Coming up, Casper went from a billion-dollar company to a $300 million one when it went public last week. It's just the latest example of direct-to-consumer brands falling out of favor. So what has changed for consumers and investors? That's next. Welcome back. After a series of missteps by some high-profile companies lately, the venture capital market for so-called direct-to-consumer companies is getting tougher. Here's what Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon had to say about this yesterday. Well, there's no question that the market is shifting in terms of looking for earnings and looking for sustainable earnings as we bring IPOs to market. I also think direct-to-consumer omnichannel businesses have a much, much tougher slog. Um, And that's a very, very competitive space. Kate Rooney joins me now with more. Kate, why has the slog gotten tougher all of a sudden? That's right. Hey, Kelly, direct-to-consumer brands were once the hottest thing in Silicon Valley. Why? They promised to eliminate the middleman and engage directly with consumers. But investors are realizing that that customer engagement is expensive and interestingly doesn't decrease as these companies scale. They end up paying Google or Facebook or even podcast to get those website views. Some are even going back to brick and mortar like the ones behind me here. The group raised a record $4.3 billion in funding in 2017. 
A few recent signs the tide is turning, though. First, Casper. That went from a $1 billion private company to a $400 million public company. Harry's deal with the maker of Schick Razors also fell apart after the FTC stepped in, and SoftBank-backed Brandless recently went under. One high-profile VC telling me those who can't show solid margins will end up, quote, getting burned in 2020. Kelly? So who's the winner, Amazon and the shopping mall? There's a few uh, themes that they say there will be some winners here, those who can show high margins or margins at all, uh, and those who are not valued like a tech company. If you're valued like a retail company, it does seem like there's still an appetite. And some with um, subscription revenue. That recurring revenue is a little bit more predictable, according to some investors. Good point, like the razor companies. Kate, thanks so much. Kate Rooney there. We appreciate it. That does it for The Exchange. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.